Good morning, Four Corners. It's a, a blessing to be back with you all. I want to thank Will for preaching uh, last week, last Sunday, and uh, so, that, so that I'd be able to go to this conference, the Shepherds Conference. Uh, the reason I, that I showed you this little video clip, this little promo clip, is because I want you to want to thank you as a church for giving me the opportunity to go to a conference like this. This is the third year that I've been, and every year it is a rich feast from God's Word. It is a rich encouragement to me as a pastor and as uh, one of the elders here at, to be able to bring uh, what, what I learn at the Shepherds Conference to, the, to our other elders so that we as elders can be faithful shepherds of God's people whom he's entrusted to us here at Four Corners Church. So thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to go to this conference, which was last week, and uh, thank you again to Will for uh, bringing the word to this local church. Uh, the theme, I want to say this about the conference, the theme this year was I will build my church. So every year there's, there's a different theme that they cover. And last year it was we preach Christ. And this year it was I will build my church. So uh, the power of the church, the mission of the church, the unity of the church, all of these things were uh, brought in from five or six hours of Bible teaching every day, just really intense time Together And it's always nice to sit under preaching. We were talking in our, in our group this past week about how uh, it, one of the folks in our group said, hey, it must be nice to be able to go and just listen to someone preach. And uh, I, I responded that it is. It's, it's, it's a great thing to be able to sit under preaching. God's people were meant to sit under preaching. And uh, it's one of the things that you realize how much you miss. But I was nonetheless excited to get back and to preach God's word myself here today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. <coughs> I'm going to try not to cough you to death this morning. Will graciously gave me a cough drop before I got up here. I can't really have one while I'm up here, so we'll see how it goes. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And our time in Genesis so far has been focused on God's work of creation. From the very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we get when we open up the Bible. We read that very first sentence, that those very first words of the Bible. All the way from that to the end of the six days of creation where we get God declaring that everything that he had made was very good. So this is what we have looked at up until now. The last two weeks, uh, Will preached from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And the week before that, we had our men's retreat. And uh, Pastor Tony Carter came and shared uh, some from Jonah. For us, which is what he had taken us through during the men's retreat. So it's been a few weeks. Maybe you have forgotten all about creation. Well, we're back here again. Uh, maybe you, uh, you, you, your mind has drifted away from this, but this is what we've been doing for a couple of months now, I guess. We have been looking at Genesis chapter 1, going all the way from those first words to the very good at the end of chapter 1. The beginning of day 1 and the end of day 6 between this Period And throughout this period of Genesis 1, we have seen God forming a world. We've seen, we've seen him filling it up. And then as I discussed a, a few weeks ago, we saw that he culminated it with the creation of man. So God formed the world. He formed the various spheres into which he would put things. He would put uh, beings. He would put creatures. And then he put man on the earth, man and woman, male and female, over the earth as royal representatives to have dominion over the earth. And that's what we covered in uh, the last two sermons that we had on the book of Genesis. Today, we come to the seventh <coughs> day. So we've had days one to three, days four to six, and now today we come to the seventh Day. So go ahead and stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to be reading Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. <coughs> 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You can go ahead and be seated. As I was thinking about the title for the sermon today, I sort of toyed with some different ways of, of bringing this out, and so uh, ultimately I just came up with the seventh day. Uh, I mean, it's what it is. That's what this passage is about. And, uh, and in fact, uh, it's the repeated word throughout. It's repeated three times, I believe, explicitly. The seventh day. So that's what we're dealing with in chapter two, verses one to three. The seventh day. So let's pray and ask for God's wisdom, ask for his illumination this morning of his word, and, and pray for his convicting and gracious healing power in each of us. <clears throat> our sovereign Lord, our heavenly Father, our infinite creator God, we worship you. You alone made the heavens and the earth. You alone are eternal. You have no beginning and no end. Hallowed be your name. God, we desire with flawed desire to worship you this morning, God. We know that our desire for you is always tainted with imperfection. It is always tainted with flawed motives and distracted minds and divided hearts. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would receive our flawed, weak, imperfect praise this morning, that it would be sweet to you that it would be an aroma to you, and God, that we, even in our weakness, would be mindful through that of your gracious gospel, that we would consider that you justify sinners through Christ, and that we, though sinful, are born again and have eternal life through him. Father, would you give us just a profound confidence in the gospel this morning? Give us a profound confidence in what Christ has accomplished for us. And as we look at this seventh day of creation, as we look at, at this portion of your holy word, we pray that you would convict us and that you would bring assurances of pardon and grace to each of us. God, undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who do not know you. Maybe it is not so, God, but... Probably it is. And so, Father, we ask that you would show those individuals that they do not know you and that they are on their way to eternal judgment. Father, would you convict them of their sin? Would you show them Christ and your glory? And would they believe in him for the forgiveness of sins? God, we pray that those of us who have trusted Christ, that we would trust him anew. This morning that we would trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. That we would see you in your glory as our creator. And through that, we would worship you and live lives of obedience unto you. God, help us this morning, we pray. We are needy people and we, we, be, we believe that you help us in worship to, so that we might be edified, so that your name might be hallowed. So God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump into our text this morning, I want to read several key passages <clears throat> from elsewhere in the Bible. I'm going to read these slowly. I want you to kind of listen closely to what is said here. You can, you can just listen to them, write them down, look at them later, or you can turn to them if you wish, if you're fast, if, you, if you're fast at those Bible drills that you did when you were <laughs> nine or ten. Maybe you didn't do those, uh, but if you could flip there quickly, you can take a look at them. But if not, you can just listen to each of these. And in, these are passages that refer back to the seventh 
day of creation. They, they're, they're biblical passages that are necessary in understanding what's going on here in Genesis chapter, one, uh, Genesis chapter 2, those first few verses. And as these first few verses of Genesis 2 get played out throughout the rest of the Bible. So from the Old Covenant, from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 28 to 11, this is what we read. Exodus 28 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." And here's the reference back to creation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So you see this synonymous relationship between Sabbath and the seventh day. The seventh day and Sabbath, they're used interchangeably for the Uh, Jewish people here with the Ten Commandments. (coughs) In the New Covenant, we read this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Hebrews 4, 8 to 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, here we see the, the idea of rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest For the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me give you two more passages Romans 14 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Finally, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So why? Why do I inundate you with these Bible verses, these passages at the very beginning of the sermon today? Why am I reading you these passages? Well, the reason is to illustrate the point that here we are entering into a big topic with many questions. Uh, this, has, uh, this gives rise as we consider the seventh day and we consider the Sabbath and the working out of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant and an understanding of Sabbath rest in the New Covenant. It gives rise to a lot of issues and it gives rise to a lot of questions. So let me give you two of those questions. First, what is the Christian's relationship to the Sabbath? I mean, you may have come from a context where uh, that was very different maybe from what you, what you have uh, been involved with recently, or maybe you've seen this played out differently among different Christians. What, what's the relationship of the believer, the Christian believer, to the Sabbath, to a day of rest, to an understanding of this seventh day? It's a question I think that maybe a number of us are kind of scratching our heads on a little bit and maybe just filing it away. <laughs> you know, we do that. We, we come to questions all the time. Maybe this is eschatology for you. You come to questions all the time and you go, ah, file it away. It's just, it's just too confusing. It's just too hard. We're not gonna think through it. We're gonna file it away. Well, the hope is that maybe we won't file this one away uh, as we come to consider. But that's the first question. So what's the relationship between the Christian and the Sabbath? And then the second question is, what is the relationship between the Sabbath and the Lord's day? So what is today? It's not the seventh day of the week. It's the first day of the week. The day in which the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And we as Christians worship 
on the first day of the week. We worship, come together, and, and celebrate a little mini Easter. By the way, let me just say this as we prepare for Resurrection Day or Easter. Uh, just consider this. That every Sunday is a little mini Easter. It, it's not the case that we just sort of fly through the year and just kind of casually do church and maybe I'll come every once in a while, that sort of thing. But you know, Easter, you better be there because that's the big celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That, that's not true. Um, that's a careless way of understanding the resurrection, the implications of it in the Lord's day. Every Sunday is an opportunity to come together as God's people and to celebrate the truth of Easter, that Christ lives, that he is risen from the dead. So what is the relationship, though, between this Old Testament idea of the Sabbath and this new covenant Christian understanding of the Lord's Day? How do we deal with these two things? And that, of course, raises other questions about the nature of Sabbath rest and future Sabbath rest. And is the Christian resting now merely by being a Christian? And what are the implications and applications of us for how we should think about our work week, how we should think about corporate worship and what we should do and not do perhaps on any given Sunday? These are all questions that maybe you have wondered about or asked, or maybe you have various opinions on, you're ambivalent, you're torn on this topic. So we're not going to do all of that today. Let me just start by saying that. We're not going to do all of that today. Today, we're going to just look at the seventh day itself in the context of creation. We're not gonna get bombarded by those things and get, get cluttered. We're just gonna look at the seventh day as we have looked at the previous six days. But next week, we're going to, this title of the sermon next week will be The Seventh Day Applied. And, and that's when we'll begin to ask these questions and hopefully begin to answer these questions, and I emphasize begin to answer these questions, uh, about this Sabbath day, this seventh day, and how it applies to us as Christians, how we ought to think about it, and how that should affect the way we act and think when we come to worship and, and the things that we do and the way that we relate to Christians maybe who have a different view uh, on this within, even within our local church here. So that's our plan this week, the seventh day, next week, the seventh day day applied. So three things that I want to consider this morning as we look at Genesis 2, 1 to 3, without all of those implications for now. Three things. First, his completing, <coughs> just following through the text, really just looking at the verbs. I mean, oftentimes you can just uh, delineate a passage as you read through the passage. You can, you can delineate it by looking at, at repeated elements and you can, look at, uh, you can delineate it by just looking at the verbs. So the seventh day is the main idea and the verbs used, there are th essentially three things that God is said to do in this passage. So I wanna look at those, his completing, his ceasing, and his consecrating. So let's start with the first, his completing. His completing. So where do, where do you find yourself in Genesis this morning? As we've gone through it so far, where do you find your own heart? Well, I hope that your attitude, your heart disposition is much like the psalmist in Psalm 104, 24. As we've now come to the end of the six days of work, we've seen God's creation. Where's your heart? This is the heart of the psalmist as he considers it. O oh Lord, <coughs> how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Now here's the thing we have to see. If, if all we get out of everything we've covered so far and everything we're going to go on to cover in chapter two regarding creation, if all we get out of all of that is this hard disposition, this heart disposition that celebrates God's manifold works, that extols his wisdom and recognizes that he is our creator God, then that is what we set out to accomplish. That is what we want to do, is worship this God who made us and who created all these things. So just as a, as a little bit of a calibration, where is your heart at this juncture? As you've gone to gospel community group week after week and as you've discussed creation and as you've sat here or maybe listened on podcasts and you've thought about creation as you've left the building and maybe looked at birds a little differently and trees a little differently and looked at your little babies a little differently. As you have done all of this, has your heart 
moved towards praise, towards celebration, towards wonder? Or are you numb, cold, callous to these wondrous things of God? If so, ask the Lord in his mercy to soften your heart. Ask the Lord in his grace to give you new affections for him and new recognitions of his glory displayed all around us. At the heart of the sinful person, at the heart of the unbeliever, is a heart that suppresses the truth of God's glory displayed in all of creation and replaces him, the glorious God, which is pointed to by all creation, replaces him with created things. And here's the thing. If we don't view creation as a pointer to God and that does not create within us worship of God, it will inevitably become an idol. We will inevitably begin to worship it if it, does, if it is not a conduit of praise. So where is your heart now? And when we come to chapter two, verse one, we have the completion of all that God has made. So verse one says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. <clears throat> we have the sky <clears throat> filled with its celestial bodies that regulate time and provide light. Remember that those were the two major reasons that God made the sun and the moon and the stars. By the way, that's an amazing thing. We, this, this past week we at Trail Life, we looked at the stars and had a telescope out there and Craig led us in some basic astronomy. Uh, we had a little astronomy class. It was really good. And one of the things to consider is that these stars, I, I was looking at a, in a, a, a little book the other day that there's a star called, I, think, I believe it's Arcturus. I don't know if you've heard of that star. But it makes... It makes our sun, so our sun looks very small next to this star called Sirius, which we learned about trail life, and Sirius looks tiny compared to this massive star called Arcturus, which is so, so, so far away. But here's the thing, all of this centers on Earth. So we know that the sun doesn't go around the Earth. We learned that centuries ago. We had that nailed down for us. But all of creation centers on the earth. Regardless of whether or not, the, or, or regardless of the fact that the earth orbits around the sun, all of it exists for those on earth to see it and to glorify God. So God put these amazing bodies in the heavens to regulate time and to give us navigation, to give us days and years, and to give us light on the earth at night and during the day. So we have the sky filled in this way. We have the earth filled with beautiful and delicious plants and trees. We have the sky, sea, and land filled with creatures of various kinds. Just, to, just consider all of the, the, the creatures that you have seen at the zoo or that you see in your yard. Or you know, I was, This morning I was looking out the window and this just random stray cat just walked right by. I mean, everything from a household cat and dog, gerbil, whatever it is, to the most incredible, distinctive creatures under the sun, all of it made by God to fill the earth, to fill the sky and the sea and the land with these various creatures. And we have all of this placed underneath God's image bearer, male and female, man and woman as royal representatives of God on the earth. He's been forming, he's been filling, and all of this creation is summed up in chapter one, verse 31, which I mentioned earlier, as very good. <coughs> and here, in our passage, we are told twice that God's creation has now come to an end. Before the seventh day is the way we should understand what we read here in verse 2. As it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. Well, it's not as though God started the seventh day and then he finished. So he did a little bit of work on the seventh day. That's not the case. The way that some English translations deal with this is they say, by the seventh day day. And it's clear from the text that the creation is already finished. Look at verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. So it's clear that God finished his work at the end of the seventh day. I mean, the sixth day, sorry, he finished his work at the end of the sixth day. And as the seventh day began, God was done. He had created 
all of this. Up to this point, we have been marveling at God's creative work. We have been bombarded with various verbs used of God. He created, he made, he spoke, he separated, he called. All of these verbs that we read of God's activity. He's an active, powerful, doing God all throughout chapter one. And we've, we've seen all of this action unfold as we've gone through this chapter. And now, at the beginning of chapter two, we are told that all of this creative work is completed, accomplished, finished, done. So, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about the God whom we worship and the God whom we call Father? Well, there's one very important thing that I think we are to learn just on a basic level from what we encounter here, and it's this. God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Now, this may seem to you like a very basic truth, and one of the things that's so fascinating about the Christian life is there really are only a handful of basic things that we need to get and know and live out. It, it, it's, not, it's not a million different things. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's, a, there's a few foundation stones, a few basic truths, and, and it all goes down to basically one or two basic truths about the Lord and about who we are and who we are in Christ. But ultimately, we forget the basics. So all the time, we are going back to the basics. And one of those is that God always, not sometimes, he always, every day, every hour, every second, he always accomplishes what he sets out to do. We have seen little expressions of fulfilled purpose already. As we've come through chapter one, we've seen this. God has these various purposes. The expanse is what? for the purpose of separating the waters from the waters. What are the lights for? As we just discussed, lights in the expanse, for the purpose of, being, of, of noting signs and seasons, days and years. Man, for the purpose of ruling over everything. So we see God setting out these, these targets, these goals, these objectives, and he's moving towards that. And throughout the narrative, we constantly get these words, and it was so. And it was so, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. So we've seen fulfilled purpose already from day to day to day to day. But here, I think the bigger picture comes into view for us. All that God had purposed has come to its perfect end. So what does this matter for the Christian? Well, maybe... You came here this morning and you feel like life is just going great. You just, you just feel really close to the Lord and you feel like God is just inundating you with blessings and you're just sort of walking with him and life feels very cheerful. Life feels very maybe comfortable. You feel productive and fruitful and faithful. You, just, you, you sense, you sense a, a, a deep relationship between yourself and the Lord and between yourself and others in this world whom you love. Maybe that's very far from the case. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel very, very far away from your God. You feel very far away from your heavenly Father. You know that you're a Christian but you've drifted and you just, you do not feel his presence. You, you do not pray to him. You're not reading his word. You're not walking with him and your heart is growing colder and colder. And I think one of the great truths that you need to know is that God finishes what he starts. Philippians chapter one, verse six says, I am sure of this, this is Paul speaking, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we see God's completed work in creation, we are meant to understand that God will complete his work in you in recreation. The God who predestined you before the world began 
will glorify you one day in his presence. So cry out to him and pray that he will give you a softer heart for him, a more affectionate, tender heart, that he will begin to feed you freshly with his word, that he will give you wisdom and discipline for living the Christian life daily. But he will not cast you aside. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day, at the day of Jesus Christ. We also, I think, are encouraged as we see God completing this work. We're also encouraged to consider that one day God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be a renewed creation. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God is going to remake the world. It says this, Romans 8, 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Christian, in just a little while, you will walk with God in paradise. There will be, there will be, just as sure as there are trees and stars, there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness and the knowledge of God dwells. It will be a perfect place. No sickness. For those of you who are sick, no sickness, no death, no crying, no sorrow, no sadness, no broken relationships, but a perfect place. And we can know that this will happen because the same God who started with, by, by speaking this world into existence with a mass, a watery mass, and he formed it and he filled it and he shaped it for us to live in. And he said, it's very good, I'm done. We'll bring to completion this work of recreation and new creation that he started when he raised the first fruits, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead. He will not abandon his work. We do <laughs> a lot. I can't tell you how many books I've started and never finished. Uh, I mean, it's insane. And maybe we shouldn't finish all of them. I don't know. But, um, I can't tell you how many little things I've started and just didn't get through to the end. But uh, God doesn't do that. He finishes what he starts. And that's who our God is. He's a God who finishes what he starts. He's a God who never fails to bring his work to its perfect completion. And so we see him. We see him in this text. And we are meant to behold him. We are meant to know him and put our trust in this God. This is the God who calls to you saying, trust me. Trust me, not yourself. Not your friends, not created things, not your job, not, not your health. Trust me, your maker, your creator. So we see his completing. And I think we are meant to meditate upon that for all that that means for us. And secondly, we see his ceasing. <coughs> Excuse me, look at verse two. <clears throat> and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So how are we to understand this idea of God resting, right? Six days of work followed by this one day of rest. What in the world is going on here? God, did he pull up a lawn chair and just kind of hang out, make some lemonade? I mean, is this, what is going on here? God resting. Is this a, is this a, a moment of, of leisure that we should understand in very human terms, like when we're sort of sitting on the beach and we're saying, man, finally, some rest and relaxation. Unless you have, unless you have your kids with you at the beach. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that way. It's not that way. But if you don't, you say, yes, this is great. This is rest. Is that how we are to understand what is going on here with God? No, that is not the case. The verb can be understood to mean simply ceased. God rested or God ceased. John Calvin explains it this way. <coughs> In typical glorious fashion, as Calvin does, God ceased from all his work when he desisted from the creation of new kinds of things. On the whole, this language is intended merely to express the perfection of the fabric of the world. 
So we're meant to see here a very close relationship between him completing and him resting. It's a, it's, there's almost a synonymous connection here. When it says he rested, it's very closely linked to he completed. Uh, that's basically the big idea that is being communicated here. And there are two major things that we need to understand here, I think, as we come to this idea of God resting. So here's the first that we need to understand is that this is ceasing, not abandoning. Get that. This is ceasing, not abandoning. One of the things that we find throughout the entire Bible, and I've said this before, we see this, I think, most, for me, at least personally as a child, this struck me, is the narrative of Joseph in Egypt. One of the things that we know about our God is that he never lets go of his creation. He never stops caring about its details. He never stops governing it with his providence. The deistic God of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas, Thomas Jefferson is an idol. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a God who just sort of set things in motion and let it roll out to sea. The God of the Bible is intimately involved and connected with his creation. So we are not to see in God's ceasing, we are not to see that he abandoned his creation or he stopped sustaining it or he stopped governing it with his providence. Psalm 104, 29 says, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. Speaking of animals, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Isn't it amazing that Jesus says that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's incredible. That is the kind of intense involvement in the creation that God has. And Jesus will pick up on this in Matthew 6, this idea of God's care of all creation. And as we looked at when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, he will talk about how if God cares for the flowers and if God cares for birds, how much more will he care for you? And as I, as I mentioned before with Joseph, we have Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt and God just working every step of the way. In my mind, the most beautiful picture of God's providence in all of the Bible, precious, precious to us it is. And we'll get there because it's in Genesis. It'll be a while, but we'll get there. And this tells us that God is intimately evolved with all the cause and effect relationships in our lives. Everything under his ordaining control. As Hebrews 1.3 says of the Son, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The image is, if you were to look in at a picture of the earth from space, the image is really of God just sort of holding up the globe. And if he took his hand away, whew, it would all come to nothing. God holds it he cares for it. He breathes life into it. He never lets it go. So while he ceased from his creative work, he remains intimately involved in its governance. The seventh day cannot mean that God just sort of let go. Came back to work on the first day. No, God was there. Second, this Ceasing is not tiring. This is ceasing, not tiring. So the first thing is this ceasing is not abandoning. Ceasing, not abandoning. Secondly, it is ceasing, not tiring. Did God need rest? You know, one of the um, things that you will encounter, and particularly Mormons have this view of God, is that he has a body. That's not true. God does not have a body. God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus says. So the idea that God's up in heaven, he's got really like white hair. Of course, Jesus has a body because he became man. But God does not have, God the Father does not have a body. And God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in triune unity before the foundation of the world, there was no body. Now we know that God would manifest himself, a theophany, an appearance of God. He would manifest himself to his people in physical form. And so we see this with the angel of the Lord figure in the Old Testament. We see this with, with various manifestations of the Lord as three men came to the tent of Abraham and one of those was the Lord himself in physical form. 
But we should not conclude that God has a body. He is incorporeal. He's immaterial. He does not have a body. He is not up in heaven with white hair and fingers and toes. When it says we are made in his image, it is spiritual. We are made in his image with rationality. We have mind and morality. We relate. We can relate to him. So we are not to understand God in this way. And perhaps if you have up to this point, maybe had this kind of shaky view of God, then you've just read this very literalistically. God rested, he really did. He sat down somewhere over by a tree and he just took a rest. And maybe that's the way you've understood this. I hope not, maybe it is. And if that's the case, what I want you to see today is that God did not rest in that way. He did not need rest. Isaiah 40, 28 says that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He didn't need any rest. He never needs rest. We also read in Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God does not need rest because God is omnipotent. That means he has all power. His power is never depleted or in need of refreshment. God is not like a glass of water that you pour out and then you need to put some more back in it. He's not like you are after you work out at the gym or go for a long run and you need to lay down or sit down or have a nice tall glass of water. That's not God. God does not faint or grow weary. He, fatigue is not an aspect of his existence. But there's a picture of the Lord God himself and the person of his son on the boat on the stormy sea. Do you remember that story? I love this story because in my mind, maybe you can maybe you bring up a reference after the sermon today that I'll say, oh, I think that's a little better. But in my mind, this is probably one of the best pictures of the hypostatic union in Christ, that Christ is one person with two natures. He's one person, he's one Christ, but he is fully God and fully man. He has a, he's fully divine nature, fully human nature, joined together in one person, united. And I think him on that boat is probably the best illustration of that. What do we have at the very beginning? He's sleeping. Jesus is worn out. He's fatigued. You know, he's your sympathizing high priest. So when you have fatigue, he knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to be utterly exhausted. He knows what it feels like to be torn every which way. He knows what it feels like to be at the end of himself. And so he's down in the bottom of the boat. He is just out of it. He's totally asleep. He's in sound rim sleep. And in the midst of a storm, that's how tired the Lord is. His disciples wake him up. They're scared. There's a storm. They're going to die, they say. Like Jesus comes up. What does he do? The storm is raging. He says, stop. The storm stops immediately. It's incredible. Perfect stillness. Perfect calm. In one little story, we see the glory of God in his divinity. We see the glory of Christ in his divinity and the glory of Christ in his humanity that he became like us in every way yet without sin he needed to rest. I can remember when I read this story to Jake and he asked me, my son Jacob, and he asked a question about God needing rest. He said, he said but daddy, I, I didn't think God needed to rest. This was an incredible opportunity to explain to him, God became man and dwelt among us. He became like us that he might die for us and that he might intercede for us forever as our high priest, our sympathizing high priest. So God does not tire, not at all. This is a rest, this rest is delight. This is a rest of delight or satisfaction. In fact, Exodus 31, 17 says, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested, and listen to this language, and was refreshed. What do we do with that? I mean, okay, so we have these passages to talk about God. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't fatigue. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. And then we're, we read in Exodus that he was refreshed. I love the way John MacArthur explains this to us. This is what he says. To say that God was refreshed does not imply that he was rejuvenated by the regaining of lost energy. Rather, the sense of it is that he paused to delight in his works. 
He was refreshed by delight and satisfaction in what he had done. And one of the ways that we know this is true is because throughout chapter one, we get this kind of imagery of God making something, stepping back, seeing it, and saying, good. And then at the end of all of it, he looks at the whole, he says, very good, and then he rests. So the imagery is very much a rest of satisfaction or delight. And finally, this rest is meant to be a pattern for human life. And this is something we'll talk about more next week when we explore what the implications are, the applications of this are for us and our relationship to our jobs and work and and our rhythm of our week and so forth. But here we see at least this, that God sets a pattern for human beings. And what that tells us is that even at creation, even at creation, God is showing us what we are to be like as his image bearers. It's incredible to consider that we've just been told that we're made in God's image and then even in God's work-rest relationship, he's imaging for us, he's showing us, he's modeling, setting a pattern for us as to how we are to think about the very same thing in our work. And we know that it was used this way or understood this way because of the passage I just read at the beginning from Exodus 20, where they are to work for six days and rest on the seventh day. This is a a good, a gracious gift from the creator. You know, there was no Sabbath among other people in the ancient world. The Jews were weird uh, to other people and they were seen as being lazy because one day a week they didn't do anything. So the Romans and the Greeks and other people, they just thought, man, what's wrong with these Jews? And they also had circumcision, which everybody thought was crazy. And so it was just, a, it was just one of these things where they, they just another, another way, by the way, it's important, another way of di- di- distinguishing this people from the pagan world. And that was part of God's intention for the Sabbath. So let's finish this morning with his consecrating. We've looked at his completing, we've looked at his ceasing. Now finally, we come to his consecrating. Look at verse three. Verse three. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy (coughs) because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The first sermon in this series was entitled Starting with God. And one of the things we saw was that God is distinct. As we consider that very first sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We we saw from that that there was a time before God had made anything where he still was. And so God made everything, which means the relationship between everything, 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 and God is creature, creator. Utter distinction between everything and everyone, including the devil and the demons of hell. All of them, creatures. God, the eternal creator. So we saw at the very beginning this creator-creature distinction. And in a fallen world, which we'll read about in Genesis chapter three with the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, in a fallen world, this distinction between creator and creature becomes that much more distinct, pronounced. God is holy, he's set apart. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system was meant to communicate there's God and then there is sinful man. Even among God's people, they were to build a tabernacle. They were to be very careful in how they approached him. They were to make sacrifices for their sins as a way of communicating to the people that they were sinners and God was perfect and God was holy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God was meant to be the flashing light that all Israelites, these readers of Genesis, saw when they participated in the worship, the yearly, daily, weekly, monthly worship of the people of God in Israel Holy God. And here we have the first occurrence in the Bible of the holy God making or declaring something holy. It's interesting. This is the first time where God actually sanctifies something. He sets it apart as holy. He declares it as such. We see that here with the seventh day. And the implications of this is what we're going to look at next week. So we're not going to go much into this this morning. This is kind of a nice segue into what we'll discuss next week. But for now, as we conclude this morning, I want us to make one simple observation. 
Just one very practical observation for us to consider as we finish up today. And it's this. The God who sanctifies or makes holy desires above all that his people be holy. God set apart a day at the beginning of creation. But the entire Bible is about God setting apart a people for his own glory, for his own name. A servant people, a bought people, an owned people, a saved, delivered, glorious, saintly people. That is the intentions of God all throughout the Bible, even as he is working in Adam and Eve after their sin, all the way to the end of the Bible. That is the purposes of God. At the very beginning of the Bible, we have a set-apart day. At the end of the Bible, we have a set-apart people who forever worship the king. That is all of Scripture. What does this mean for us? Well, Peter tells us, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not just when your kids are watching. Not just when the unbeliever you want to believe you're not a hypocrite is watching. All your conduct. In the privacy of your home, while you're on your computer by yourself and no one will know wherever, whenever, in all your conduct. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5 says this, for this is the will of God. What's God's will for your life? Your sanctification. Forget about your next job. Forget about uh, how you're gonna put away for this or forget about how you're gonna do your kids' schooling. Don't forget about those things, but in a real sense, do. Because God's will is this, your sanctification which means that in all of our going and doing and planning and so forth, if our salvation, our growth in Christ is over here and all these other things that we think matter so much to God are over here, God says, switch it. Go to that because that is my main objective. That's my will for you. That'll be my will for you as you're dying. That'll be my will for you as you're suffering through that hour of death, which is coming to all of us. Your sanctification even then delighting in God, trusting in his goodness, refraining from sin, loving him. He goes on to say this, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like, listen, listen, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you know God? Do you know this holy God who makes us holy. So this morning, behold our God, the God who finishes, the God who never faints or grows weary, who wisely and lovingly sets an example for us to follow, cares for our good physically and spiritually, who delights in his own works and who sanctifies his people. This is our God. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, you are a great God, a holy God, and we desperately need your spirit to fill us that we might be holy like you are holy. God, would you help us today to repent of our sins, to turn from unholiness, to turn from a lack of regard for our sanctification, to turn from our distractedness and our idolatry and to turn to you, the living God, our Father, and to trust you freshly today as our creator and sustainer, as the one who providentially cares for us and as the one who sanctifies us both in this moment all the way to the last breath. We worship you, our God. Draw sinners to yourself. Sanctify your people. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.